I invite you to turn this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as we continue on in our series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is about something that we Christians care very deeply about, which is people seeing Jesus in us. One of the greatest blessings of the gospel to me is that when we believe in Jesus, we aren't just forgiven our sins, but Jesus and the Father through the Holy Spirit come and make their home in us. Doesn't Jesus say in John chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. How do we know that's true? How do we see Jesus living in us? How does the world see the Father and the Son at home in us? From 1996 to 2003 in South Africa, there was what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Hearings. Uh, This was a national project that was very much inspired by the Christian faith of its organizers. And the goal... Uh, was for it to be a place where people could confess the sins they committed during apartheid and then pursue some kind of reconciliation with their victims. And if you don't know, uh, apartheid was the name for the racist, oppressive government policies of South Africa. So sometime between 1996 and 2003, I couldn't find the exact date, and I didn't spend, I guess I didn't spend hours and hours trying to find it of the story, but sometime during there, uh, during those dates, an elderly black Christian woman sat and listened to a middle-aged white South African soldier as he confessed to her that he was the one who brutally murdered her husband and son and buried them in an unmarked grave. He confessed honestly, he confessed with tears, And after his confession, as he sat with tears trickling down his face, the silence was broken momentarily by the judge who turned to this woman and asked her what she wanted from this man who had taken so much from her. And there was another brief silence, and then she spoke. But rather than make demands, which she would have been completely justified in doing, she asked him, if he would be willing to go with her and show her where her husband and son had been buried, and if he would be willing to help her give them a proper funeral. So she asked him to help her mourn. Then she said that because of Jesus, she still had love to give. And so she asked him if he could become like a son to her, and visit her every two weeks so she could give him the love that she was no longer able to give to her husband and son. So she adopted him. And then finally she asked if he would accept her complete forgiveness, starting with letting her hug him publicly in this courtroom right then and there. So public reconciliation. Uh, I think just hearing that story, we hear Jesus' presence. Uh, I think we know that if we were there, we would see Jesus' face in that interaction. Uh, Because that kind of love for your enemies, and that kind of forgiveness for your enemies, looks so much like Jesus 
as he hangs on the cross and forgives those who were gathered around him and absorbs the pain of our punish and punishment for our sins and turns to this thief and says, today you will be with me in paradise. I still have love to give and I'm going to give it to you today and forever. Right? That looks so much like Jesus. It has to be Jesus. This is what 2 Corinthians 3 is all about. It's about seeing Jesus in love and in forgiveness, but not just in this sort of exceptional case like this one, but in the daily acts of love and forgiveness and reconciliation that we are called and blessed to give each other, which I think can be similarly difficult because forgiving somebody 77 times in a single day is hard. But that's how we see Jesus, isn't it? And so we're, let's read 2 Corinthians 3, and then we'll consider three things from it along these lines. The first is, you know we're God's messengers. The second, uh, we can now see God's face and live. The third, God's face in people we don't expect. I guess four things. And four, how God's glory increases in our lives. And for our visitors, I'm sorry these aren't pithy, but this is the suffering you're the people that you sit around and have to do with every week. So pray for them. Uh, let's, uh, let's read 2 Corinthians 3, verses... Uh, well, just 2 Corinthians 3, the whole thing. Let's hear God's word. <clears throat> Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word from our God will stand forever.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word which you have given to us for our instruction and our edification. But Lord, we know that without your Spirit's work in our hearts and lives right now, uh, that it will be of no use to us. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit now would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe, and wills bent on following Christ, uh, so that we might leave here reflecting the glory of Jesus. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those called to uh, hear and respond to your word, may they all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So maybe you don't think that what I said in the introduction has anything to do with this passage, but I'm going to show you. I'll show you. Uh, First, by looking at our first point, which is, you know we're God's messengers. Uh, So I skipped the last verses of chapter 2, but in those verses, Paul pleads with the Corinthians to listen to him and Timothy and actually turn, as we thought about two weeks ago, and show forgiveness to this brother who had sinned against them and broken and harmed their relationship with a large portion of the church. Why did Paul need to plead with them to listen to him? He's an apostle. Shouldn't they just do what he says? Well, there's a few things standing in the way. We'll look at some of them as the series goes on. But here, I think the thing that made the Corinthians hesitate and even push back against Paul and Timothy is that they were being asked to do something that was hard and painful. Uh, My favorite Old Testament scholar, Walter Moberly, wrote a book on discerning prophecy. And the whole book is an exploration on how in the age of the prophets did God expect his people to be able to discern real prophets from false prophets. And one of the things that Moberly points out as he's reflecting on the book of Jeremiah, which is uh, one of the places in the Bible that has kind of this sustained reflection on the difference between real prophets and false prophets, is that uh, in Jeremiah, real prophets call on God's people to follow his word, even, it, even when it means they have to do things that are morally, socially, economically, spiritually, and emotionally challenging. Like losing social standing by tearing down idols or enduring the political cost of institutional reform, or bearing the economic cost of caring for the poor. Those are three major things in Jeremiah. Or, as in this case, bearing the cost of forgiveness by actually bringing this person back into the community with words and deeds of Christian love. All of those things and other things like them that God calls us explicitly to do are hard. They're scary, and they demand months and years of your time. You can't show someone forgiveness for 10 minutes on a Saturday and call that good, right? You can't put in just eight hours a day every other day and take weekends off when you're trying to glorify God and love your neighbor in his name. This is a 24-7, 365 and a quarter, including leap years, occupation of the Christian life. And one of the things that Moberly points out in his book is that false prophets usually called people to do easier things. 
You don't need to sacrifice. You don't need to change the status quo. You don't need to forgive. Why should you endure the pain of forgiving them freely when you can inflict pain on them and they deserve it anyway and make them earn your forgiveness and welcome? And in that light, if we can think of prophecy sort of just generally in terms of speaking God's word and prophets as people who call other people to follow God's word, then I think we can say generally false prophecy is pretty common. And it's really easy to listen to. It doesn't require you to suffer as much. It doesn't require you to sacrifice as much. It doesn't require you to hurt on behalf of others, to suffer for the restoration of other people. That's one of the marks of false prophecy in the Bible. And uh, that false prophecy, if you will, uh, is, that, is uh, what the group that Paul will eventually call the super apostles, which are really just false apostles, that's what they were telling the Corinthians. You don't need to bear the cost of forgiveness. It's not on you. Make them hurt. So, why then should the Corinthians listen to the harder word of sacrifice from Paul and Timothy rather than to the easier word of the super apostles? Why should we? Well, because Paul says, the words we're giving you are God's words. And you know that, Paul says, because in the past, when you followed those same words, you've experienced the love of God coming from you and going to others. Verse 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of a living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. When you followed this word, Paul says, you showed that you are a letter from Christ. When people saw you, they saw Jesus in you. They experienced the love of God from you. Like we did when I told the story of that Christian woman forgiving that soldier in the name of Jesus. And like people do in our lives when they are forgiven and have our love for them renewed again and again and again and again because that's what Jesus does for us and it's what he calls us to do in his word. So why should we forgive and reconcile and love our enemies and make loving sacrifices for our neighbors? Well, it's because that's how people see Jesus. Which brings us to our second point. We can now see God's face and live. So what Paul says next is a little obscured by the interpretive decisions that were made either by the translators or by the English editors. And since I generally don't like the English editors and I like to blame them, we're going to blame them. So it's all their fault. Uh, the way our passage reads in translation makes it seem like the emphasis here is on not being saved by Jesus in the Old Covenant and being saved by Jesus in the New Covenant. And that is not what is going on here at all. Uh, the emphasis is actually on how it's possible now to see Jesus' face and live. And it's also on the kinds of people you can actually see Jesus' face in today. We're going to get to that. But first notice in verses 4 through 6, Paul says, 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now remember what Paul is confident in. He's confident that when the Corinthians have followed the apostolic word, that is the words of the Bible, they've actually shown each other in the world Jesus. Which is an amazingly bold claim, right? To tell someone that act of forgiveness you just saw, uh, that act of reconciliation, act of love, you just saw Jesus. And not only that, you know you saw Jesus. That's a pretty bold thing to say, isn't it? How can you have the confidence to say that? Well, Paul says, it's not because we're sufficient to put Jesus into people. We're not able to make God the Father and God the Son make their home in you and shine their glorious face from you. But what we can do is bring God's word of the new covenant to you, which promises that this is the way it works. We can bring you God's word, you can believe, and you can experience Jesus and the Father living in you and shining their face from you as they've made their home in you. And then Paul says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now this verse has been super abused in the past to pit one part of the Bible against another or to give people to just ignore parts of the Bible that they don't like. Uh, but given the fact that Paul is talking about obeying the word of God, that cannot, that clearly cannot be the way that Paul wants it to be used, right? Unless Paul's an idiot and can't tell that he just destroyed his entire argument in one sentence. You should listen to the words of the Bible. But hey, sometimes the Bible gets it wrong. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> no, I don't buy that. So what's going on here? Well, there's, there's actually a lot of Old Testament references buried in this text, one of them is God's Old Testament promise to write his word on our hearts by the Spirit. And that's just all over the Bible. One of them is God's promise to give us permanent life through his indwelling spirit. That's Ezekiel. Remember when God tells Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know, and God says, you're right, I do. And then they're living. But the one he really lands on here, the one that he focuses on so deeply, is the Old Testament story of Israel and Moses at Mount Sinai. So verses 7 through 8. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was fading, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, why does Paul call this meeting of Israel and Moses and God at Mount Sinai a ministry of death? It's not because God's covenant with Israel was broken or insufficient. It's not because God didn't actually save Israel from her sins. It's because literally everybody is afraid that when they see God's face, they're going to die. So Israel says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, they said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. 
We've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day, we have seen God speak with man and man still live. Therefore, why should we die? In other words, we realize this kind of thing, seeing God speak and living, that's not going to happen twice. We got an exemption the first time. If it happens again, we're going to die. And by the way, God in Deuteronomy says they were right. That's exactly what was going to happen. Moses on Mount Sinai asked God, do you remember, to show him his face? And God tells Moses in Exodus 33, no, because if I show you my face, you'll die. I don't want you to die. The best I can do is show you a shadow of my glory. My backside is what God literally says, but I like the way Ezekiel puts it. Um, an image of the likeness of the glory of God. I think that it has God's shadows, shadow. God's glory is so great that you can just look at the shadow of his shadow, and even that's overwhelming. That's what Moses saw. And then later on, as Paul alludes to, when Moses comes down from the mountain after just being shown the shadow of the shadow of the glory of God, his face shone so brightly that the Israelites begged him to put a veil over it so that they could look at him and not die, not hurt. In fact, the Bible tells us that even as the glory of God faded from Moses' face, he still had to keep the veil on because even the fading glory of God in Moses' face was too much to look at and endure. And what this event taught Paul is... Uh, that in the Old Covenant, which just means God's relationship with his people before Jesus, we were not normally able to look at the face of God and live. We couldn't even stand to look at the afterglow of the shadow of God's glory shining from other people and live. But then, in the New Covenant, God comes down and he wraps himself in human flesh. And in the face of Jesus, we see God completely face-to-face, -face, unveiled, and we live. We see God's perfect love, and we live. We hear his calls to repentance and his promise of forgiveness and his granting of forgiveness, and we live. We see him wash and heal and cleanse and free, and we live. And through this, we see God's glory shining so brightly it attracts crowds and members of Caesar's household. We see God himself, and we don't have to look away. We don't beg Jesus to hide his face behind a veil. As a matter of fact, we ask him to come over to our house and have dinner. Please just always be with us. Because we can look at God's face and not worry that it's going to kill us. We get to live. Because God's face comes clothed in Jesus. You see, in Jesus, God's glory is brought near to us and it gives us life with him that we hadn't had and could not have had before he came. Now, as part of, a min part of Jesus' ministry after ascending into heaven, right, kids? Remember, he flies up into heaven after he's raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus then lives 
in us by the Holy Spirit. That's an essential part of our new covenant relationship with God. And what that means for us practically in day-to-day life is that Jesus can then reveal his glory and his beauty and his forgiveness and his holiness and his love, that is his face, through us, through our lives, through us living in obedience to his word by faith. My friends, when you obey God's word, especially the hard parts, the parts that call for sacrifice and generosity and humility and repentance and confession and forgiveness 77 times in one day, people really can see Jesus in you because the Jesus who lives in you is showing himself to them through you. You show that you are a letter from Christ, written not with on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart by the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our much shorter third point, which is seeing God's face in people we don't expect. Now, remember the context is the need for the Corinthian church to see Jesus in the apostles and also the need for them to show Jesus to this a sinner in their congregation who needs to be welcomed back and loved. Uh, and this context helps us understand why Paul then shifts from talking about tips uh, to, to, to talking about some of the Israelites in his day. Not all of the Israelites, uh, not by a long way, right? All of the apostles were Jews. Most of the first Christians were Jews. But the fact remained that some Israelites struggled with what it means, what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And I know we're running low on time, so I'm just going to jump directly to what I'm getting at here which is we don't appreciate how hard it would be to think that a Roman soldier who oppressed you and maybe killed your family could show you the face of God, could show you Jesus. In verse 14, when Paul says, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. That's what he's talking about. They struggled with the idea that God would reveal his face and shine his glory and make himself known to them through non-Israelites. In other words, if God is going to show his face, it's not going to look like a murderer or a tyrant or an oppressor. It's going to look like me, right? God always looks like me. He doesn't look like you. He looks like me. (laughs) You see, what Paul is doing is not only encouraging the Corinthians and us that people can see Jesus in us. He's also reminding us that we need to receive Jesus when he comes to us wrapped in people that we would not expect him to come wrapped in. And that's hard to do, which is why Paul says in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil being... Not salvation specifically, but the king, the thing that keeps us from recognizing Jesus in Christians who are not like us. Or, or in Paul's case, uh, those who are calling us to do hard acts of obedience in his name. My friends, Jesus lives in all his people. And surprisingly, you're not going to be surprised by this, Not all his people are exactly the same. 
They're not all exactly like us. Racially, ethnically, culturally, economically, politically. That's a big one these days. We are not all the same. Just like Simon the Zealot, who hated Rome, and Matthew the tax collector, who worked for Rome, were not the same person. And they did not become the same person. And yet they both had Jesus. And they were both able to show Jesus to one another and receive Jesus from one another and love each other and love others in Jesus' name. Paul is getting at the same kind of thing here. That's an important word for us today. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Oh, I see. Having turned to Jesus, I now see Jesus in you. You now see Jesus in me. I didn't think I'd see Jesus in you, but there he is. Praise God. Last point, shortest, how God's glory increases in our lives. So I'm skipping verse 17. I plan to come back to it next week. In verse 18, Paul ends with this. And we all, which is a pretty bold statement to a congregation that's divided and broken by unforgiveness. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And I know we're at our time, so I'm gonna keep this brief. I hope you can see now that when Paul says that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, what he means is that we are seeing Jesus in each other. And he says that as we see Jesus in each other, as we learn to see Jesus in each other, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another because the Lord is at work by his spirit in all of our lives. And to end, I just want to focus on this idea of transformation. Paul's point is that our life with God is not static. It's not stuck. It's not stationary or lifeless. It's alive, and we grow, and we change together more and more into a people who reveal Jesus' glory, into a people who's, where Jesus' face is more and more visible. How does that happen? Well, by actually following Jesus' words, by prayerfully asking God to make us humble, and then practicing humility as best we can in his name by prayerfully asking God to help us honestly and openly confess our sins and then actually confessing our sins honestly and openly. By prayerfully asking God to help us forgive and reconcile and be generous and sacrifice for others and then taking practical steps to do it. Just like Jesus who would go off and pray to his father and then come out and love his neighbor. That's what Jesus looks like. That's how people see Jesus in us. And then we try to do that as best we can in the forgiveness and the power of Jesus as best we can every day. Uh, the woman I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, she did not grow to that degree of Christ-like glory right there, right? She wasn't a new Christian and then bang, look at this amazing display of Jesus face. What that story reveals to me is years and years of prayerfully walking with Jesus, 
in a church that prayerfully walked with Jesus sacrificially for years and years. Because that kind of sanctification doesn't happen simply individually. It happens communally in the body of Christ. And what that story shows me is what our church can look like and what we can individually look like if we intentionally seek to receive Jesus from one another and show Jesus to one another every day. Uh, I want to look like that. I want to I behave and speak and act in such a way where people look at me and be like, he is so much like Jesus. I want people to look at our congregation and say, they are so much like Jesus. I can't stand it how much they're like Jesus. I think you guys want that too. So let's commit ourselves to this kind of life together in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you that you have made a way for us to see your glorious face by revealing it to us in Jesus. And uh, thank you that you have made your home in our hearts by your Holy Spirit and that you've given us a way to show uh, Jesus to one another as we follow your word. Uh, Father, please help us to love and forgive and confess and be generous and humble uh, as your word commands us to be uh, so that we would be transformed more and more from glory to glory. Uh, because we want to show Jesus to each other. We want everyone to see Jesus in us. We want to be famous, not for ourselves, but as a place where it's easiest to meet and receive and see and listen to Christ. And so we pray this all in his name. Amen.